Hi, welcome to the Catch a Tornado podcast. In today's episode, Piotr Karvatka speaks to Brad Buda, the co-founder of Census, an operational analytics platform. Census boasts that it's the easiest way to sync your customer data in all of the available tools and claims to be the best app to get your sales and marketing teams on the same page. Today, Piotr speaks to Brad about how joining Amazon and the cloud web services team in the era of the early days of AWS in Seattle proved to be a formative experience for his entire career. They also talk about the early days of Census, its unique qualities, its current impressive growth and the dynamic role changes for a technical founder that naturally come during the process. Tune in. Hello, everyone. In today's episode, I'm having Brad Buda, co-founder of Census, the operational analytics platform. I'm going to ask him what does it mean, like analytical uh, data platform, uh, how they are doing the crazy numbers they are growing, backed by Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia, just to mention a few of the investors. And of course, we're going to also talk why the data tools like Census, but also Databricks, Snowflakes are so hot right now. What makes Census unique uh, and how to manage the exponential growth? I'm excited to talk it all through with uh, Bradley today. So let's get started. Hi, Brad. Thanks for uh, being with me. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure and I've been looking forward to it. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so first of all, how I got to, to, to Census, I, I think that that's pretty um, pretty good uh, starting point to our discussion because uh, I like reading you know, all sorts of reports, technology rather, enterprise tech 30, and actually this 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 latter one, enterprise tech 30, uh, was the first uh, report where I spotted um, census. It was in top ten uh, data tools, and actually what what struck me is that you know all those enterprise tools, software tools uh, that are 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 growing right now so rapidly are data tools, you know, Databricks, Snowflakes, Census. Uh, do you agree that we, we have kind of, you know, renaissance of data tools as we knew it before? Like, this is completely different product offering. I think, I think we absolutely do. I think you're right. Um, and, and I'm glad you found out about us that way. Uh, we're still a small company, so I'm always eager to hear about how people find out about us. Um, I do think the data space is having a renaissance. I think um, this kind of trusty old SQL and, and data warehousing technology that, you know, predates my career uh, is, is for some reason, again, hot. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's a few reasons for that. And some of this is trendiness, to be mm -hmm. sure. Um, our industry is not uh, immune to trends. Uh, but I think, you know, over and over again, uh, generations of, of developers and operators are discovering that uh, everything flows from the data. Um, and there was a long move, I think, for a long time, uh, and I'm happy to geek out about this, too, um, about how different back office applications and products were trying to be oriented on triggers or events or APIs um, when the ground truth of everything is always data. That's where it comes back to. And I think people are realizing that, uh, like I said, we realize this once every generation and we're realizing it now that if you want to control your tools um, or understand your tools, understand their data. That, that's interesting. I mean, you know, we had all those uh, tools like Tableau and other BI uh, and warehouses and other stuff uh, before. What happened with those tools? Like, 
Well, they haven't gone anywhere. Um, you know, I think I think data warehousing has been, you know, even though it has gone up and down in fashionability, and right now it's it's riding a wave of fashionability with with Snowflake and and BigQuery and Redshift and Databricks and uh, Rockset and any number of other data data warehousing technologies that are becoming popular now. Um, it's become more accessible because it is in the cloud. But of course, I think the data warehousing space has done a pretty good job of keeping itself relevant for a long time, and the BI space as well. Um, you know, the rise of, of web-based BI and, and things like Tableau or Looker or, or, or other tools like that um, have have really been steadily marching for the last 10 yeah. years or so, um, or even longer. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is an ability to say, hey, we've built all of this data infrastructure. It's very powerful. We know a lot of our businesses. What else can we do with that infrastructure? Um, and that's sort of the, the wave that we're riding at Census is, you know, the only application for your data warehouse isn't just a BI tool or, or a even a machine learning platform, which is a third thing that's sort of driven yeah. the growth industry. But you can use this data to, to run your business in a very tactical way, not just in a strategic, let me deliver a slide for the board deck way. That, that's interesting. And uh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, you, to, to, to use the tools on a daily basis uh, and for, by and for lot, you know, wider range of people, also because they are easier to, to use and I think it's maybe even more importantly, they are easier to deploy because, you know, the Tableau or, or other things weren't that, you know, difficult to use, especially for data analysis, right? But to, to deploy at that scale, it was crazy difficult. Yeah, ease of deployment. I mean, th this is where the cloud is sort of, you know, eating eating all software, right? Data warehouses were one of the last gotcha. mm -hmm. things to get cloud enabled. Um, and, you know, th that was obviously something that I think Amazon was first to the game. Um, but but Snowflake, in some ways, did it better um, and said, hey, you know, you can have an elastically scaling data warehouse where you only pay for what you use in a very short period of time. Um, admittedly, you know, when, when we started Census, Snowflake wasn't even fully self-service. You still needed to sort of talk to a sales rep. To, to get yourself a snowflake instance. Uh, but I think anytime you make something easier to use or to get out to just to deploy, you're going to have more users. Um, and the data space is definitely benefiting from that. It's maybe one of the last pieces of enterprise software that's benefiting from the sort of cloud-centric deployment model. That, that's exciting. And we, we absolutely get uh, to this uh, once again uh, later on. I mean, uh, because it, it, it's so important that you're enabling you know, all, all new categories of users. Uh, you have SQL in census, which is, you know, familiar with a lot of people like office assistants, you know, SQL, like everyone uses SQL, um, but not at a scale. And, you know, it's, it's second generation. For me, for me, it sounds like second generation tools, right? You had Hadoop and other big data tools, crazy difficult, crazy difficult to use. Even for developers, it was crazy difficult to use. Uh, now it's it's new era. It, it's exciting. But... Uh, Let's go uh, to, to back two steps back uh, to your background. Like Brad, how you how you got to you know to software engineering? Like, you know, what what was your way to census? It's um it's a long story. I'll 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 keep it as long or as short as you um as you would like it to be. But uh, the way I got to software engineering, I was I mean fascinated with computers since a, a very young age. Like you know, I think my first programming class, and I was very lucky to have this resource available to me. I was six or seven years old, and uh, my school had a little computer lab. This was Amazing. in 1988. Um, so so uh, very very on the leading edge of what we now call STEM education. Uh, but they had a small computer lab with about 15 uh, Apple Apple II GSs, I believe is the model number exactly, um, that ran, you know, and you, you 
booted up the computer and you got a basic prompt. Um, and you could either put a disk in and run a game or you could start writing code. Um, and so, of course, I played all the games. And then once I was done playing all the games and I'd gotten everything I could have out of Oregon Trail and, and Lemonade Stand, I started learning how to write code. And there was a small after-school class offered uh, learning how to write Apple Basic. Um, and then I was also, again, very fortunate to have a home computer not long after that, uh, an IBM uh, a 286 um, with, I think it had a eight megabyte hard drive uh, and probably 512K of RAM, some, somewhere in that neighborhood. Absolutely um, crazy had, numbers you know, at again, the time. Absolutely. I know. Well, it, was, it was a very, I think even at the time, it was maybe a hand-me-down computer. I think we got it from a neighbor, um, but it was more than enough for me as a child. Um, so, you know, learn to write basic, uh, the, the Microsoft dialect of basic there, um, and then later Visual Basic. Um, and then the other thing that, you know, um, I had access to at that age was, was a modem and access to BBSs. Um, and then later on, you know, the early online services in the U.S. that was, you know, Prodigy at first for me, and then America Online, like everyone else had. Um, and so, both learning about programming and learning about networks um, were things I was extremely fortunate to have access to as a child, and it's just sort of a smooth path from there. Um, I studied computer science in university at the University of Michigan, um, and then when I was coming out of school, um, it was the year 2003, so we weren't too long after the dot-com crash in the U.S., um, and the job market was a little soft. I wasn't really sure where to go. And my, my best friend had just completed an internship at Amazon in Seattle. And he said, you know, I was growing up in the American Midwest, um, kind of a sleepy suburb, a uh, great place to grow up, but maybe not the most uh, culturally dense capital of the world. Uh, and he said, Brad, Seattle's amazing. Come on out here. Um, I can help get you a job at Amazon. It's not just a bookstore. Uh, he, he was working on some uh, interesting software that eventually turned into uh, the Simple Q service, SQS, which was okay. Amazon's, I think, second ever web service. Yeah. Uh, and so he said, come, come work at Amazon. And so I, I gave it a shot. I spent the first three years of my career there at Amazon in the era of, you know, kind of the birth of AWS um, and worked indirectly on a couple of AWS services, um, including the cloud, what is now today the CloudWatch service, um, but was working on a lot of performance monitoring and at the time, uh, big data. Uh, and the numbers are embarrassing now. You know, I used to, to brag about it and say our team processes, uh, I think the number I used was 50 terabytes of data a day. And people's minds were blown by that back in 2005. Uh, and now that number is, is not so impressive when you can fit that on a couple of, you know, I think all the MacBook hard drives in this office have 50 terabytes of capacity between them. So started out at Amazon. Um, yeah. It worked on um, early web services there. And this was the era, too, at Amazon when there was a mandate that everything was supposed to be a web service. Um, so the idea was whatever your team had shipped before, think about how to ship it as a service, that, that's which now seems almost yeah. obvious in, in retrospect. Um, but at the time, you know, the thing that I owned, this, this large uh, data processing system was a, a logging pipeline. Um, and it was essentially like we ran a small Perl agent, um, a couple thousand lines of Perl that ran on every computer at Amazon.com, uh, collected the logs and shipped them off to a, a fleet of NFS, NFS servers, which was a very kind of like late uh, 90s, early 2000s way to do log management. And we had done a great job of getting it running at scale, but we had, weren't thinking about that, what that meant to be a web service, right? This was a sort of a thick client. You had to have it deployed through our central management software. Um, you couldn't just consume it however you wanted to. And so that shift in approach of everything is an API and you can consume it how you want to, not how necessarily how the API author wants you to consume it, was a big kind of uh, formative moment for me in my career um, and learning that, that at Amazon from 2005 to 2008. That's absolutely amazing. I, I, I mean, you know, at the times, you know, the, the AWS was released for, I think, for quite a few years, for many people, it was just, you know, virtualization platform. 
know, you, you, you set up the, the next EC2 instance or, or of course, storage device too, right, S3. Uh, but as you said, you, you had at Amazon this vision for encapsulating way more sophisticated things as a services before. So was it like, you know, that the vision was there to, to make it products or it was just for internal purposes and then, you know, it somehow evolved into what AWS is today? It was both. And the, the storytelling is interesting on this because Amazon loves to tell the story about how the whole company was built on top of AWS. And, you know, then we released those services out to the world. And that's only kind of true. Um, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, like most, yeah, like most <laughs> large companies, we had big platform teams. Um, although, you know, this was probably one of the first companies to have a large platform team. We would have been, you know, right there with Google and Facebook in their early days. Um, and we we're providing common services to other teams, right? A very, very standard relationship in a software organization. Um, not everyone should invent their own performance monitoring or alerting or logging or uh, web server or whatever it might be, uh, cache, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I was on a, a few of those different platform service teams, but you know, the, the leadership at Amazon had the insight very early on to say, hey, you know, people we've built something here that's unique. Um, we have the largest performance monitoring tool in the entire world, and it's trapped inside of our data center, and that's a valuable product. Um, there are lots of other companies who do things other than sell books on the internet who need those tools. Uh, so let's figure out how to get those out there and resell those. And it's a long journey if you look at the arc of, um, from the day that you know the edict came on down from management to say everything must be built as an API, to the time that I started doing some of the early design on CloudWatch, to when it actually shipped, publicly and then even further to when that actually shipped internally because the interesting thing about a lot of these amazon web services is they ship to the public before they shipped internally um, of course they were available to other amazon teams but you weren't compelled to use them and there were alternate uh, techniques you know so i think I'm, I'm long out of amazon now it's been 10 years since i set a foot through their doors but i, I think that most amazon services are now actually dog fooding those own tools internally but that wasn't necessarily the order in which they shipped um, i think it was probably many years before uh, from the time that CloudWatch, for example, shipped to the time that an internal Amazon service was actually using that as its only monitoring um, surface. Awesome. No, really exciting to have this, you know, first-hand view how things evolve, you know. Uh, but how, how would it lead you to the, uh, to the idea of, 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 of census? How, how it all, you know, got started? Sure. Um, there's a couple of, you know, I think the first step was me getting the startup bug. Um, so I was fortunate to have, uh, again, another bit of luck in my career, a great manager at Amazon who, um, you know, I was disappointed when he left the company, uh, but was excited a year or so later when he called me up and said, Brad, the reason I left is I'm starting my own company. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a ad tech um, analytics platform called Track Simple. Um, and he wanted uh, me and my uh, coworker, Anton, who is now my co-founder at Census, to be the first two engineering employees. Um, so we went and joined there with a little bit of a friendly push. Um, and it's it's definitely hard to get out of the Amazon nest, out of the fang nest. Uh, that, that remains true today. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurial types within uh, big tech companies that just need that friendly push. And I got mine from, from John. Uh, and he said, come join me, be the first two engineers here. Um, take a huge pay cut, but I'll give you some equity and let's see if we can build something together. Um, and that was my experience of, you know, my first professional programming job was me providing services to serve teams that provided services to a thousand person engineering organization. And all of a sudden it's, you know, three of us engineers sitting in a room with a blank piece of paper saying here, 
let's draw the product here and then let's figure out how to build it there. So a radical shift in the world, um, but something that I absolutely loved. Um, and the thing that got me, you know, that kept the startup bug in me was not just the feeling of, you know, strong product and engineering control and the ability to do whatever you wanted, but also like the, the tightness to the customer. Um, the thing that really impressed me with that job was that we had a customer who I could name, I could look at, I could get on a video call with, or I guess a phone call in that era. And um, if that customer had an issue with the tool, we could fix it. And there was no bureaucracy. There were no layers of indirection. We didn't always necessarily do it the way that the customer wanted us to do it, right? We still had our own product opinion. Uh, but we had the ability to directly within sometimes as few as 30 minutes and sometimes, you know, the, the longest it would be would be a day or two, um, release a feature back into the product that would make our customer's life better. And that's a really powerful feeling. That rapid cycle of um, someone has a problem. I know how to fix it. I have fixed it. And now they have a solution. Um, I heard a term for that uh, recently: uh, radical customer intimacy. And uh, it was it was more for enterprises doing open source, but I think it works the same way. Like open source for enterprises, is super exciting. Sometimes just before they get this uh, first-hand feedback from devs, right? Awesome. Yeah, I love that. I, I haven't heard that term, but I love it. I mean, it's it's something that you end up doing just in the course of business as a startup, you don't have to think about being intimate with your customers because it's just, it's the only way to yeah. be. Um, but it's something that you have to remember and hold on to. And I think we're at an interesting phase to, to fast forward a little bit to census where as we scale our own organization, we're now getting from the point where we're accidentally intimate with our customers to being very intentionally intimate with them uh, and making sure that we, um, you know, are, are keeping that responsiveness and keeping that, that superpower that a small company has. Um, the stop between, Oh, sorry. No, 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 that, that's awesome. Uh, we can continue f about this intimacy for, 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 for uh, long, that's sure. But l let's back how, how you, you know, having this, this, this uh, startup back, how would let you start census? I, I can't wait you know, to hear this story. <laughs> right. You've asked me this question three times, so this time I'll actually try to answer it. So, um, you know, after starting a different company, which was an identity and access management company um, with, with Anton, who I was with at Track Simple, and uh, my, my now co-founder, Boris, um, we had a, a sort of a small exit from that company and knew that we wanted to do something bigger and better. And that was how we got to census. And it was a long kind of twisty journey. Um, we knew that we were really good with integrations um, because we had worked on that, you know, you know, being early in the, the web service days at Amazon and then working on integrations in my SSO product. Um, and we knew that we really wanted to do something around data and around customer data and around making enterprises successful. Uh, you know, something that had always frustrated us as founders was how quickly data could proliferate across different SaaS systems and how difficult it could be to track a customer's journey through your product with all those different panes of glass. And we are far from the first people to realize this problem, but we came up with sort of a different way to solve it. Um, we brought on a fourth co-founder, um, Sean, who had, you know, he has the best Rolodex of anyone in Silicon Valley. And he had been talking to some of the folks at Figma about their problems. And they said, hey, we've got this data warehouse. We have, you know, a couple million customers in there, whatever it was at that time. And we have fantastic views on what all of them are doing. And the only people who can see that are SQL analysts. No one else in the That's company all. has mm -hmm. visibility to this data. Um, they had visibility into it through their BI tools, right? To go back to your earlier question, right? They had, a, I don't remember if it was Motor Looker, a Motor Looker dashboard where they could sort of see an aggregate how the customers were behaving. But they had this really rich, like almost clickstream level picture of each customer that was just getting lost um, in the noise. And they said, 
hey, we've got, you know, 100,000 leads in our sales force. Uh, we need to figure out, you know, which one of these people we want to talk to. Can we do that rather based on, you know, instead of looking at their name or their domain name or what territory they're in or whatever, can we actually look at their product usage uh, and figure out which ones we should talk to based on who's actually using Figma in ways that suggest they will become an enterprise customer? And so we said, sure, we can help you build that. Um, and they said, okay, and we've got it all in this thing called a data warehouse. And, you know, I was not really intimately familiar with the, the data warehouse space at that point. I knew that there had been a resurgence in data warehousing. Uh, the five trend founders are some close friends of ours, and I had sort of been following them, you know, indirectly and saying, I, I think they do something for enterprises with databases, not really sure what it is. Um, and as we got to learn more about that space, we, we realized that there was sort of a missing link in this chain, right? They, we'd see these big diagrams, which was, well, the data flows from here to here to here to here to here, and it ends up in the data warehouse. And that was always the last line of the diagram. No matter what the diagram was, the, the data warehouse was always the last line. And the simple insight that, that Sean and my co-founders had was, why don't we draw a line that leaves the data warehouse and goes back into the tools where people actually do their daily work, like Salesforce or Zendesk or NetSuite or whatever it might be. This is super important point you, 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 you raise up, like the data warehouse used to be the very you know, last piece of the puzzle, usually, which means there, there was uh, typically, you know, a lot of delays uh, to access the data and it, usually you, you could access them when it was too late for many use cases. And this is the difference, right? And how you define the operational analytics that you can get it right when the, 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 the data changed some even triggers uh, this kind of you know, real, all close to real time uh, cases. Yeah, I think that's a great description of it. And the interesting thing about that, as you point out, right, the delay in acting on your data warehouse data was not a technology delay. It was a delay in the way that we use the data, right? And that's the nature of... What, what, what do you mean? Well, it's the nature of, of a reporting tool, of a BI tool, right? Um, a BI tool... I mean, they do have some features for this now, but BI tools are generally not there to trigger or notify or proactively take action. They're there to sit there and create a dashboard or charts that you can review later. Right. So as long as you've, or as soon as you have introduced a review step in your pipeline of let's all go look at the dashboard together, either maybe in a weekly ops review meeting or in a, you know, God forbid, a quarterly board meeting, um, now your data has gotten stale. So the nature of, of BI tools as the output is a dashboard and a person has to look at it, introduces human latency, right? Of okay, no, how it. often yeah. are we all going to go decide to look at that dashboard together? Um, yeah. So when the tool is, you know, when it's an operational analytics tool like Census that's actually pushing the data um, into, you know, your, your line workers, your salespersons, your marketers, um, you know, surfaces that they use to run the business, um, you don't sort of have to make a decision to look at it. You don't have to build a process around looking at it. It's just there. Awesome. That's awesome. And um, it's, it's worth, you know, uh, talking about the, the integrations you have uh, right now, because you, you, you said that you put the data right in front of the people that, that are needing it. Uh, you have many different integrations. I mean, you know, Salesforce and, you know, all kinds of analytics uh, tools and, and CRMs and, and other, other stuff. Uh, it's pretty similar to, to Zapier, right? But it's solving different different problem. So, is it like a missing puzzle for Zapier users? Could it be? I think it's it's a good question. Yeah, we do have you know we have customers who have moved from Zapier to Census. We have customers who use both tools side by side. They do they solve similar problems in different ways. Um, the Zapier model is really easy to get started with. I'll give them credit for that, and always has been. 
And it's very intuitive when you're starting out, right? The idea that an action occurs in system A, I want that same action or the data related to that action to occur in system B. And that's a really easy mental model to wrap your head around. It's incredibly easy to get started with Zapier. The problem with that is you end up building lots of point-to-point -point integrations uh, that do one specific thing and are hard to keep track of. And I also think in the limit, it's harder for people to think about synchronization of actions or events than it is for them to think about synchronization of data or profiles. Um, it's really easy to turn Zapier or a tool like it into sort of a spaghetti of integrations. Um, and you can even, you don't even need Zapier to do that, right? You know, a lot of tools have a Salesforce integration of some sort or another um, that will act as a sort of mini Zapier within the product. The difference with census is what I think of as, you know, data synchronization rather than triggers or events. And also what I think of as our process, the way that census converges. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you're building up, you're, you're iteratively building up a profile in your data warehouse of the customer as you grab new data from various sources and build new models. And as as you make those changes to the tables, the data just gets pushed out um, to other systems so that you it's essentially a synchronization at the data layer rather than um, who is forwarding events to where. So it's a little bit harder to get started with, like frankly, census is not as easy to get started with as Zapier is, but you very quickly see once you move beyond just a few syncs, the value of having a centrally managed, you know, master customer record that is is mirrored everywhere. I, I think that this is um, even about you know building the long lasting value in your organization by using census, and you don't have it with Zapier because here you have kind of you know master data management platform, uh, and I really like you put customer into uh, into you know um, central of of this whole story because. It is in central piece most of the times. So I, I really like you, you can enhance those um, data records and, and sync and, you know, have it in one, uh, one, one place. And I, I see a huge benefit of just this, uh, not, you know, regarding the, the other features you have, uh, the SQL support and integration and other, other stuff. And do you think that, this was the and is the the reason you, you, you got it rolling so fast. I mean, um, this you know this this architecture where you are putting sensors in the in the, in the middle and building the the whole master data for customers. Um, or, or was it dif something different? What was it to to, to you know initiate the growth? It's, it's a great question. I think, yes, I think it's immediately appealing to our customers when you say, um, instead of having lots of point-to-point -point integrations between different tools, potentially mediated by a tool like Zapier, RealSoft, whatever, um, that you can build one view of your customer and put that everywhere. That Our customers, um, I always like to say, they're not necessarily programmers, but they're always systems thinkers, right? They're always able to sort of look at their infrastructure and say, these are all the things we own. These are all the data assets we have in different places. How do we put those together and how do we make best use of them? And the census, the, the data warehouse approach before census ever came along appeals to those kinds of people because it says first get everything in the warehouse, right? So don't no longer think about where your data is. Then you can start thinking about what it is and what it means. And then the census approach just builds off of that. It's sort of a natural evolution of the first put everything in the warehouse step is, okay, now let's build a single model and get that back out of the warehouse. And the other thing that's nice about that is it's um, by operating at the table and column layer rather than at the sort of customer layer, um, 
it's eminently flexible, right? You know, for almost all of our companies has a customer object, um, but uh, not necessarily all of our customers, all of our customers, I should say, have um, the same ancillary objects, right? Some of them might want to track inventory. Some of them might want to track contracts, subscriptions, et cetera, because it's just tables and columns and rows. Um, and it's sort of a generic relational sync engine, you can extend census in the direction of your business, it really just by extending your own data warehouse. You don't need to do anything to census. So it's eminently flexible. Um, and so for as soon as a company has decided to make an investment in data engineering and in building pipelines and gathering the data, um, they see the world the same way we do, which is, okay, how do I get this back out and, and put it into use day to day? Awesome. Okay, let, let's talk uh, about the, the organization and uh, the, the growth for, uh, for a while. Uh, how is to have Sequoia and, and Anderson Horowitz as investors? I mean, as a founder, do you, do you feel a lot of new pressure on a daily basis? Uh, I feel a lot of pressure on a daily basis, yes. Uh, although I, I would say I've had that, you know, as soon as you... And this is a formative moment for a lot of founders. As soon as you take a check from anyone, whether it's a VC or especially from an angel, and, and particularly, you know, maybe it's a friend or, or somebody you've worked with before, or a mentor or a colleague, uh, you immediately feel pressure, right? You know, once once you're playing with someone else's money, that changes the equation. Um, we have phenomenal investors at Andreessen Horowitz and at Sequoia and many, many angels, all of whom have provided, you know, tremendous input to the business, um, many from our customers um, or will be customers soon. Um, and all of that pressure is, I think, yeah, the good kind of pressure, which says, hey, you know, I have high expectations uh, and I have to go deliver on those. Um, you know, Census is in this kind of terrifying place right now where the only excuse we have for not succeeding is our own failure to execute, right? We have all of the resources we could possibly have in terms of both, you know, capital and like fantastic investors with deep Rolodexes. We have a great team. We have clear no excuses. No, no excuses. excuses. Yeah, we've clearly found a product here that, you know, and, and a market that needs our product. Uh, so now we just have to do the thing. Uh, and that doesn't make doing the thing any easier. Um, but, you know, the, the resources we have, um, yes, there's some pressure from that, but not nearly the pressure of the opposite. You know, I've been in the situation of a startup, not census my previous startup, where, you know, we had a hard time raising money. And that's, that's far more terrifying than having, a, you know, banner investors. Gotcha. Good, good point. Good point. Uh, how the team grew? I mean, like you started with your two co-founders, right? And right now, how many people work on the organization? Let's see. I, it's, um, I, I'm reaching the point where I have to check every Monday to check the Slack channel and see who joined <laughs> this week. Uh, we started with, so there were four founders total. Um, and now we are right around 25 or 26 folks, I want to say. Um, about half of that is product team. Um, and the other half is sales, marketing, um, and other functions. Um, we've grown the way a lot of startups do, right? And in, at the seed stage, we were able to hire a couple folks on both sides of the, the house, a couple of great engineers who we've worked with previously in New Throat Networks and a couple of great um, salespeople and marketers. Um, you know, and we're now reaching the point, right, where of course you're still hiring through your network, but you're also trying to get exposed to a broader set of people. Um, and you want to avoid the bias that comes from hiring through your network as well, right? You want to find people who think differently from you, who have different backgrounds, different experience, um, you know, different career paths they've taken. Um, so now, you know, we're, like anyone, we're, we're hiring through any available channel. Um, and we're, you know, that's a big part of my job today, right? It's like, now that I'm, it's no longer uh, Brad and Anton write most of the census code. It's, you know, how do, how do Brad and, and my colleague Anton uh, find the right folks to, to build that code? Um, and, and, 
it's an interesting career transition for me, right? To go from the point of no longer being as much of an individual contributor, although I still do manage to get my hands on the keyboard a few times a week, um, to how do I make other people successful and scale the organization? Um, so, you know, it's, it's relatively easier to hire when you are well-funded and you have, you know, a great opportunity like we have, right? When we can show a candidate how fast we're growing and the great logos and customers we have um, and the cool things on our backlog, that definitely makes the, the hiring process easier. Um, but it's also a great market out there for developers today. They have a lot of lot of opportunities, a lot of fast-growing startups, and so we are um, sort of competing in that space for the best of the best. What's the most challenging with this with this transition of your responsibilities? Um, it's probably purely uh, psychiatric slash emotional for me, right? Like about you know how do I think about my job when I'm no longer as much of an individual contributor. Um, I think I've been thinking about this a lot because it's been, you know, sort of even in the first half of this year, I was still spending 75% or so or more of my time writing code. And now it's probably closer to 25%. Um, and I think the most challenging part about it is that the actions I take as a CTO or as an engineering manager or whatever you want to call me these days um, have a delay in their effect, even if they have increased leverage, right? So, you know, a decision I make to help work on an architecture diagram or to hire someone or to work on a training program or uh, decide on, you know, a new way that we're going to deploy our software to the cloud, whatever it might be, um, those decisions impact a lot of people uh, and they impact a, a you know, bigger part of the company, but I won't see the effects of those decisions until, you know, best case weeks and worst case months or years down the road. Uh, you know, a decision that we make to hire someone who's junior in their career and that we're going to mentor them at census, which is not a decision we would have made when we were a seed stage startup, um, that might not pay off benefits until four, five, six years down the road. Um, and so it's sort of, how do you operate when the feedback is less immediate, right? When I was writing code, my feedback was very immediate. It was, it went back to what I was describing, you know, in those early days in my first startup where it was like a customer has a problem. I write some code and fix it. Uh, I get instant gratification that they can say it works uh, and we move forward. Now the decisions I make, I might not see, yeah, they're, they're positive impacts for weeks or months or years. I like, I, I like the way you, you, you put it. Uh, I, I just realized that It was uh, very difficult for me too when I was switching my role to CTO. At some point, Ivante uh, has more than 300 people. I'm no longer, you know, managing the company. I stepped down last year during, during the succession before, but it was super difficult because at some point it 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 was 90% HR business what I was doing, even you know having CTO uh, role name. Uh, and, and not not that much engineering. I was missing a lot, like coding. So please don't stop coding. I think it's it's super important to have this, you know, this feedback loop. Uh, well, I dread I do dread being the CTO who only codes, you know, one day a, a month and drags the whole team in to say, hey, guys, how does this thing work? I don't. My environment doesn't work anymore. I, I don't understand the new abstractions. I don't know what the new microservices are. Please teach me how to code. So I don't ever want to be the CTO who's vanity coding, uh, just to sort of you know uh, say that he has some commits in um but you know hopefully i will find a way i mean certainly we're still at the phase where i can spend you know a lot of my time writing code and that will ebb and flow um you know depending on what the needs are in any given week of me um but hopefully i can find a way to still contribute individually without being a, a burden on the growing team who's actually trying to do this uh every day as part of their day jobs absolutely i think uh, every everyone will benefit from this and To, to be honest, most of the CTOs I talk well, like uh, from the successful startups and the software products, they usually code a lot, like being hands-on. Sometimes to uh, to, uh, to 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 you know extend when they uh, 
spend like 16 hours per day just to come up with all the things they need to do, like HR stuff plus coding. I think this is an extreme. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's, it's very important. Uh, I definitely have that experience. And I think a, a lot of CTOs do where, you know, during the day you do your job uh, in terms of scaling the organization and supporting other people. And then at night you get to write code. Yeah. That's, that's unhealthy for, for a longer run. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> so the last, uh, last couple of questions I have um, about the, the trends and the future. I mean, um, what do you say about the uh, no code and low code tools? Uh, like definitely census is part of of this landscape. Um, we absolutely are. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it has been a hot space for a long time and I think it will continue to be for good reason. You know, uh, I'm a developer. I can write code. I know six or seven different programming languages in which I'd say I'm fluent, but I'd much rather use a no code tool if I, or a low code tool if I know that I can trust it and understand what it's doing and, and possibly also extend or, or enhance it. Right. Um, you know, the best there, there's an old, um, and I'm going to forget who this came from now, but there's an old saying that, you know, features are an asset and code is a liability, right? Um, every line of code you write is a cost that you have to maintain down the road. Um, so if you can avoid writing code to, to accomplish some business process or otherwise, you should absolutely do so. Um, but you need to be able to trust that you can avoid writing that code. And I think a lot of us got burned by, you know, I'll, I'll pick on, even though it's a very successful tool, I'll pick on the visual basic, um, where a lot of people have had a bad experience with it saying, Hey, you know, this isn't a quote unquote real programming language. So if someone built a drag and drop thing with visual basic and access, and then no one could maintain it or extend it years on. Um, and that left a bad taste in a lot of folks' mouths, and especially in those of us who are professional software developers, to say, no, you can't do that. You can't trust the no-code stuff. But it's not like that is the... Um, final and best version of low code or no code. Um, and I think there's a lot of innovation in the space right now, including, you know, some of the stuff we're doing at census where it's saying, how do we have a low code system that doesn't feel cheap or shoddy, or will have to be replaced down the road. One that is actually scalable because it's built on solid underpinnings and you understand what it's doing. And, you know, in some cases that it's ejectable, right? Um, you know, census, when, when you're writing code in census, we didn't invent census QL and have you write it in a language that you can't port to another tool. You just write it in SQL. Um, and, you know, more and more companies are rediscovering that you have, whether or not you want to, every product lives in an ecosystem of other tools and you need to sort of speak the same language, both sort of, you know, specifically like the same programming language and, uh, in terms of conceptually speak the same language as those other tools to make it easier for people to move between them and move around. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're really long on SQL. Um, it's, you know, SQL is not easy by any means. Uh, I am far from an expert in it, but. A, someone who's new to SQL can get a lot done in a short period of time. And there's a lot of people who have some SQL experience, even if they don't have the word programmer uh, in their, on their job description. Absolutely. I think that developers hate those, you know, leaky abstractions that Visual Basic was full of. I mean, it was, you know, doing more things for you than you, you, you even, you know, wish to, to, to delegate. So it was a, a problem. And, um, on the other, you know, on the other hand, uh, it's enabling people, and it was enabling people even with this access and the visual basic. You know, a lot of uh, front desk workers and you know, uh, office assistants started doing s some pieces of software. It's, it's amazing, you know, if you look at this this way. Uh, so yeah, definitely SQL is, is is way better than having Visual Query Builder for <laughs> whatever abstract you know thing. <laughs> 
I completely agree. I mean, you know, we're census is built mostly in Ruby on Rails, which I think is probably unusual for any tail tool. Um, but you know, even Rails is a is a lower code product, right? The whole idea of Rails is there's a whole lot of boilerplate that you probably don't need to deal with. Um, so we're going to give you scaffolding and abstractions to go on top of that. But if you do need to eject that scaffolding and replace it, you know, you have the ability to do that because you have a general purpose, powerful, you know, programming language in Ruby. So I will always, you know, for my own work, I'll pick lower code solutions, you know, nine times out of 10, as long as I know that I can trust those to be extensible and or ejectable later on. Yeah, and based on standards, I think that that's super important. Okay, so the last question is, what's the next big thing for uh, sensors? It's a great question. Um, there's a lot on the pipeline. There's, there's, you know, like every software company, we have a longer backlog than we will ever get through. Um, the there's the sort of boring stuff around scale, right? You know, census is moving trillions of records now. We need to move it into the tens and hundreds of trillions, um, and you know, build a data synchronization platform that can scale up without sacrificing quality. Um, one of the things we think a lot about is data quality. Unlike a lot of, I think, you know, the previous generation CDP tools out there, census is really focused on making sure that every last bit of data that we think is accurate. And so we have a lot of work in place to both ensure um, within our product that we're doing the right thing in terms of synchronizing things and automatically testing that and making sure we don't regress over time, but also providing our customers tools to do the same things. So we've been doing a lot of data testing work in the product, uh, helping you validate that your data is what you think it is, helping detect if one of your syncs goes off, um, either in a, you know, obviously if a sync goes red and stops working, we'd let you know, but more subtle failures. Um, every customer we have uh, has a story of an ETL pipeline that stopped working because it was, you know, running on a cron that no one maintained or knew about. And six months later, everyone realized, hey, that dashboard hasn't been updated. It's got the wrong data. Um, we can't let that happen, right? You know, brownouts are in some ways more dangerous than blackouts because you don't necessarily notice them. Um, and so, you know, automatically flagging when we're moving less data than we used to, we're not following um, the patterns that it used to. Uh, that's a big part of our tool. And then, you know, more exotic things like rolling back um, failed data syncs. Um, that's something that, you know, I don't think anyone has ever attempted, which is sort of like, hey, I just bulk loaded 10 million records into Salesforce. Is there an undo button? Um, that's a, a question that keeps me up at night. I haven't figured out how to build it yet, but we have some ideas. Um, and then something you alluded to earlier, uh, reducing the latency of synchronization um, and moving to more real-time applications. You know, the fastest that you can sort of move data through the modern data stack, as we call it, from from uh, someone clicking a link in the product to that ending up and in influencing their Salesforce profile is probably around 90 seconds right now, which is, you know, a lot faster than what we think of as the batch, you know, data warehousing jobs of, of old, right? Where it's, you know, once a week the, the job runs or maybe it runs at 3 a.m. every day and you get updated data. 90 seconds isn't too bad, but that's still not fast enough for some business use cases. Um, so we have a lot of ideas in place about how to reduce the latency end to end through the pipeline and be able to have the data warehouse centric modern data stack um, with census sitting on top of it, but not to pay the, the latency costs that you historically think of for warehousing. Um, and then the last one will just always be more destinations. Uh, you know, census is right around 40 or 50 destinations that we can send data to today. You know, hopefully a year from now, that's 150 or 200. Um, and we're really working hard to, to add to that list um, and make sure that it's not just about sales and marketing tools, but really any SaaS. Um, because even though we sort of have, you know, the use cases on our website around, here's how you can do product qualified leads or, or other sort of common data tools, we have to be general and flexible and let people sync data anywhere, including to custom destinations, which is something we just shipped. Um, 
in order to really unlock the power of the tool. Because the best thing that a, a platform like Census can do is have our users surprise us with their use cases. Um, it's really gratifying when we tell a customer, here's how you can use Census to do X, and they do X. But it's way better when they say, hey, we figured out how to do Y with Census. And we say, wow, we never thought of that before. That's awesome. Um, and we can sort of um, you know, push that back into the ecosystem and help other companies do that same motion as well. Awesome. That's, that's really exciting. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, that's, really, uh, that's it is <laughs> exciting and terrifying. As I said, <laughs> it's terrifying meaning, you know, I started thinking like how to solve this issue, like with undoing the, <laughs> the by myself, it's super difficult. So it is, we, we have some, we have some creative ideas and we have some really bright people on the staff here who have, um, who, we've actually started doing some prototyping in this direction, but, um, yeah, well, I'll let you know when we get there. I, I'm pretty sure you, you find a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure you find a way and that, that's, that, that's gonna be exciting stuff. So thanks once again, Brad, for being with me, with us, with me today. Uh, it was f fantastic. And, uh, guys, if you have any questions to Brad, uh, feel free to post in the comments, and I'm sure that uh, Brad and uh, and me, if you have questions to me too, will try to to answer. Thank you. I'd love to, Piotr. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. Uh, fantastic questions, and it was a great conversation today. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Catch the Tornado podcast. Subscribe or leave us a comment on your favorite listening platform. See you next week.